On August 13, 1983, Starkey Swenson left his home on bicycle and set off into the Nina, Wisconsin night. His planned destination and route are unknown. What is known, he was never heard from again. Ten years later, with no trace of Swenson's body ever found, a man was arrested and charged with Swenson's murder. He maintains his innocence, but halts his 1994 trial by accepting a lesser charge and is sentenced to two years in prison. To this day, that man, John C. Andrews, refuses to admit any involvement or guilt in the crime. Starkey Swenson's body has never been found. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, and together with my team, I've been asked by investigators to help find the body and with it, answers. In this podcast, we will review the case in detail, applying today's knowledge and technology, and chronicle the effort to locate and recover the lost body of Starkey Swenson. This is Cold Case, Frozen Tundra, Episode 3, Burden of Proof. Corpus delicti. It's a Latin phrase which, when translated to English, reads body of the crime and is a term that applies to all criminal cases in the United States. As a legal principle, corpus delicti requires that investigators and prosecutors provide proof a crime ever took place before an individual may be charged with that crime. Contrary to what one might assume, Corpus delicti does not mean that a body must be found in order to prove a murder occurred. It does, however, mean that in situations where a corpse has not been discovered, the prosecution must rely on other sources of evidence to show the crime has, in fact, been committed. It's worth mentioning that in most murder cases, the body of the victim is the primary source of evidence. And, historically, in cases where a body has not been found, Another form of forensic evidence, DNA, fingerprints, fibers, or something similar, is typically used to prove the murder took place. And so, in March 1994, as Winnebago County District Attorney Joseph Paulus stood to address the newly formed jury, taking time to scan the faces of each of its 12 members and two alternates as they anxiously awaited his opening statement, he knew he faced a challenge. Joseph Paulus began to explain to them how, without a body, DNA, or physical evidence of any kind, he would prove that John C. Andrews murdered Starkey Swenson on August 13, 1983. Hello and welcome to Cold Case Frozen Tundra. I'm Dr. Jordan Karsten, Professor of Anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Oshkosh and your co-host, along with Matt Hiskus. 
for this investigation into the disappearance of Starkey Swenson, who was last seen riding away on his bicycle from his Nina, Wisconsin home in August 1983. In our last two episodes, we shared what's publicly known of the decade-long missing person investigation. We discussed detectives' inquiries into one man, John C. Andrews, since very early in the case. Their investigation into John Andrews even included a John Doe hearing with Andrews as their person of interest, which, along with their other inquiries, for many years did not turn up evidence that would lead to an arrest. Suddenly, after 10 years without a single break in the Starkey Swenson case, it was reclassified from a missing person investigation to a murder in September 1993. Andrews, 10 years past his initial questioning and several years since his John Doe hearing, was arrested and charged with Starkey's murder. In our second episode, we shared the stories that led to this seemingly sudden reversal in the investigation. Through their testimony at a pretrial preliminary hearing, in which the state must present its evidence and receive court approval to proceed in bringing the case to trial, Lois Swenson, wife of the victim Starkey, Claire Andrews, ex-wife of the accused John, and Suzanne Eggert, John's girlfriend at the time of the murder, presented their accounts of the days preceding Starkey Swenson's murder, of the day he disappeared, and of the weeks and months after Starkey Swenson went missing. That's right. The three women provided details that certainly helped explain the sudden break in the case, which really, up until that point, had gone quite stagnant. All three women gave investigators and the court a plausible motive for John Andrews to murder Starkey Swenson. Starkey, they said, had been involved in a long-term affair with Claire Andrews, and John was furious about it. Claire admitted to the court that the affair had begun years before she met John. It was the cause of why she and John split after just six weeks of marriage, and that it had continued since the divorce. Lois Swenson and Suzanne Egger corroborated the testimony, Lois stating that she had been aware of her husband's infidelity for years, and Suzanne reporting that she'd heard of Starkey and Claire's ongoing affair through John, who brought it up often, in anger. The most telling testimony of the preliminary hearing, the new information which had truly broken the case open and which led to John Andrews' arrest, came from Suzanne Egger, who told the court that she'd finally opened up to investigators after a decade of silence that she'd kept out of fear of retaliation from John. Suzanne Eggert confirmed for the court what she had told police before John's arrest. She said that she'd been driving around town while waiting for John to visit her at her home on the day and into the night of August 13th and that she ended up outside Claire's house, she'd known John was there, across the street from the Shattuck Junior High School. That night, Suzanne said, she overheard two men arguing in a courtyard on the school grounds. She said she recognized one of them as John due to his distinctive British accent. She'd heard the other man involved in the altercation pleading, no, John, don't. She also heard that man scream, oh, God, followed by noises of a car engine revving, metal and wood crunching, and dragging, and ultimately, John's voice stating, There. Now you're dead. How do you like that? Suzanne lastly told the court she'd driven around the school before leaving, and she saw John leaning into the open trunk of his blue Pontiac Firebird Trans Am. She says he's still in the grassy alcove at the school at this time, that she can't see what's in his trunk or what he's doing as he leans into it. The next day, Suzanne states, she'd spent time with John, witnessed both cuts on his hands and damage to his car, 
which John tried to explain away, and was even then threatened by John to keep silent, which she did for 10 years. The testimony of Lois Swenson, Suzanne Eggert, and Claire Andrews is without a doubt set to serve as the linchpin of the state's case against John Andrews in his upcoming trial. It's powerful and emotional testimony, but it's not without its weaknesses. Of the three witnesses for the state, two, Claire Andrews and Suzanne Eggert, are able to speak to the court about John's actions on the day of the murder. Claire, because she was with John that day, and Suzanne, because she overheard the events of that night. Together, they comprise a cohesive and compelling timeline of events around the time Starkey Swenson disappeared. However, both Claire and Suzanne are John's ex-lovers, and for that reason, are not the ideal witnesses in a case against him. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility that they both have an axe to grind with John. We aren't saying that they are being in any way untruthful in their testimony, but it doesn't take a brilliant legal mind to see that this is a scenario the defense team will want to exploit during the trial. They will use each woman's testimony, Claire's recounting of a short-lived marriage filled with emotional manipulation, and Suzanne's report of John's threats against her and her children as a reason the women harbor anger towards John and want to see him behind bars. Yeah, that position from the defense definitely makes sense to me. And then we have the state's third witness, Lois Swenson. Lois's testimony of her knowledge of Starkey's affair, the frequency with which he visited Claire Andrews, and the problems it caused in their marriage is, while both shocking and interesting, really, only just that. Shock and interest added to the case. It provides context for the possible motive, certainly. But... She's not a witness to John Andrews' whereabouts or actions on the day of the disappearance. Lois adds some color and depth to the case, but she's not able to point the finger at John. Right. So there are definitely some shortcomings with the witnesses in the state's case. They've got two women who tell a compelling and believable story about John's actions on the day of the murder. But unfortunately for the state, Claire and Suzanne are certainly not above scrutiny from a potential jury as to whether they are unbiased witnesses. The fact that the stories line up very well, are consistent with other facts in the case, and don't try to hide the messy parts of Claire's and Suzanne's lives do lend some credibility to their recounting of events. Reading it myself, I have to say I, like many jury members might also assess, find it to ring true. But the truth isn't necessarily the issue here. It's really whether or not there is room for a jury to question and consider that the witnesses could plausibly have a motivation to lie. Yeah, I agree. My first thought in hearing this story was also that the women are likely telling the truth. But if I was a jury member, it's hard to say if I'd have some questions about whether I can fully invest in their testimony. Unbelievably, the testimony of witnesses is not even the biggest challenge the state faces at this trial. When you first hear the stories told by Claire Andrews, Suzanne Egger, and Lois Swenson, you think it all sounds pretty good, pretty convincing. The women's accounts fit in well with one another, they corroborate each other at several points, and they basically tell a tale with the hallmarks that many have learned to expect could plausibly lead to a murder. Love, lust, jealousy, affairs. It all makes sense. But when you step back, you also realize that there isn't any hard evidence the state can present which would support the stories Claire, Suzanne, and Lois tell. There isn't anything that can lend them some credibility with the jury or prove that they are telling the truth. If the prosecution had evidence that would prove beyond a doubt that any one of the women 
was telling the truth, it would make the case significantly stronger. But it just doesn't exist. In fact, the state has little to no hard evidence at all in this case. The prosecution's case against John C. Andrews rests almost entirely on the events as told by these three women, along with little bits, pieces, and anecdotes provided by others in the area. As we know, Starkey Swenson's body was not found prior to John Andrews' arrest. It wasn't found prior to his trial. It still hasn't been found today, almost 40 years later, which we of course hope to change with our investigation, but we're about 25 years too late to add to the evidence being presented to the jury. So, in 1994, the state is headed into its trial against John Andrews missing what, in most murder investigations, serves as the primary source of evidence in the case the body of the victim. Additionally, the investigation has not turned up any other evidence that would be useful in a case without a body, whether to prove the murder happened, or to indicate who committed the crime, or possibly both. No traces of Starkey's blood or clothing have been found. No fingerprints, shoe prints, or other items are present to erase any doubts of whether Starkey was at Shattuck Junior High on the night of the murder, or in John Andrew's vehicle, or anywhere else that put him in harm's way. It's hard to overstate how unique the Starkey Swenson case is in this regard. Nationally, only an extremely small percentage of murder cases are ever brought to trial without the victim's body having been recovered. In fact, for many years, the debate on whether a case could be tried at all without a body in evidence was a hotly contested legal issue. That question has since been resolved but it is still very rare to bring a murder case to trial without the victim's remains. According to records, just over 500 such cases have been tried since the 1850s. Yeah, that's right. And beyond that, in virtually every other case that has gone to trial without a body being found, the prosecution is able to produce significant evidence to highlight to the jury that a murder did in fact occur. In these cases, investigators have typically found blood, hair, fingerprints, clothing, or other items from the victim in the possession of the accused killer, or in that person's home or vehicle, or through other methods somehow pointing to that person's involvement in the crime. More recently, technological clues such as cell phone towers and internet IP addresses have been used to link an accused killer to a given crime scene. There have also been some past cases brought to trial in which forensic evidence has not been found, but these typically involve a confession of some kind either made by the accused killer to the police, then later recanted by the accused or thrown out on a technicality, or a confession from the killer to a friend, family member, or in the classic jailhouse snitch scenario, to a fellow inmate who then turns the information over to investigators. There are definitely elements of this in the Starkey Swenson case, with Suzanne Eggert having overheard the potential crime as well as her recollection of statements John Andrews made to her in the days following the murder. But there's nothing as concrete as a full-blown confession, and there's certainly no forensic evidence proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that the murder occurred. All of this is to say that the case against John Andrews for Starkey Swenson's murder is extremely unique, with very strong circumstantial testimony but little to no physical evidence to support it. Not only is there a significant lack of physical evidence, 
But the earlier investigations that police hoped would lead to some clues in the case are now somewhat of a liability for the prosecution for that simple reason. They did not lead to any physical evidence. You may remember that on October 30, 1983, just a few months after Swenson went missing, police executed a search warrant and impounded John Andrews Firebird. They searched the car on site, removing several items, then sent it all to the crime lab's impound lot for further testing. Of all the items removed from inside the vehicle, items that remained in the car, and elements of the car itself, the testing and forensic investigation turned up nothing of interest. No evidence of Starkey Swenson or his body having ever been in the vehicle. And as we know, no arrest was made for another decade following the execution of that search warrant. Of course, the prosecution will argue that John Andrews was successful in destroying any evidence in his vehicle in the days following the murder. In fact, they do have witnesses who are able to attest to John doing just that, thoroughly cleaning his car the very next day after Starkey went missing. This detail would certainly be interesting to a jury, but all in all, the simple fact remains that nothing was found in John Andrews' Firebird, despite the most complete investigation of the vehicle that the state could produce in 1983. Andrews' defense team can use that lack of evidence to their advantage as they build their claim that Andrews was not involved in the crime. The prosecution faces a similar challenge with another source of evidence in the case, this time at the site of the alleged murder, Shattuck Junior High School. About a month after Starkey Swenson went missing, school janitor Carl Staffold called police to report that he had found parts of a bike at the school around the time of the murder. He also said that, not knowing they might be connected to the case so soon after the story broke, he had thrown them out when they were discovered. Police went to the scene to follow up, When they arrived, they found a long gouge in the pavement which continued into the grass and ended near a broken tree. There were red marks which appeared to be paint in some sections of the gouges. The scene the police found fits very well with the events of the murder as described by Suzanne Eggert. We know Starkey Swenson was last seen riding his rust-red bicycle away from his home and that he was possibly headed to see Claire Andrews, whose house is across the street from the school. That same night, August 13th, Suzanne Eggert reported overhearing the altercation in the grassy alcove at the school, as well as the sounds of an engine revving, metal scraping on the ground, and what she described as wood breaking. Suzanne's story, coupled with the gouges and the pain at the site, certainly seems to support the theory of a man and his bike being hit by a vehicle, dragged, and pushed into a tree. Unfortunately for the prosecution, however, this is where the evidence begins to break down. You might recall that at the time of Carl Staffold's report and the discovery of the site, police removed a portion of the gouged concrete and curb and sent it to the state crime lab in Madison, Wisconsin for analysis. According to that crime lab report, techs were unable to determine what specifically had made the gouges in the pavement. They couldn't rule out a bike. They also couldn't say the marks were definitively made by one either. The lab also reported there was no sap from the broken tree found among any of the gouges or paint scrapes to indicate the possibility of something being pushed against the tree and then pulled away. Even more concerning, the red paint found within some of the gouges, after testing, did not turn out to be a type typically used on bicycles. These are definitely problematic details for the prosecution. One possible tie to physical evidence is the testimony of Carl Staffold. 
who reported that the parts of the bike that he found at the school were a match with photos he was shown of Starkey Swenson's bicycle. That said, in 1983, many people rode rust red Raleigh bicycles similar to the one that Starkey owned, so even that's not definitive. In light of all of this, the murder scene itself begins to present a challenge for the state's prosecution effort led by District Attorney Joseph Paulus. The jury will undoubtedly hear Suzanne Eggert's emotional recounting of the events she heard and witnessed on the night of August 13th, which without a doubt is quite convincing. They will then also learn that the site did in fact bear the signs of an incident occurring just as Suzanne described it, even more convincing. The question, though, is whether these points will remain as strong in the minds of the jury members once the defense team begins to point out that the testing does not in any way prove the murder happened as described, and in some cases seems to work against the details of the story. Right. So the trial is set to begin soon, in mid-March 1994, and these are the exact facts and questions that are undoubtedly weighing on Prosecutor Joseph Paulus's mind. Will the emotional often riveting stories told by Claire Andrews, Suzanne Eggert, and Lois Swenson, complete with their salacious details of secret affairs, threats, manipulation, and jealous rages, be enough to sway a jury? Do they capture the attention, and possibly the imagination, in a way that science just can't compete? Does a jury need to see the photo of a body, or hear reports of blood spilled, found, and analyzed? to believe that Starkey Swenson was murdered? Will the lack of physical evidence leave too much doubt for a conviction? With these questions in mind, Joseph Paulus begins to prepare for jury selection in the case against John Andrews. Despite the lack of physical evidence, he's apparently quite hopeful of his ability to win the case. In fact, he tells reporters, My experience as a prosecutor for eight and a half years is that circumstantial evidence is often more compelling and convincing than direct evidence. He goes on to say that direct physical evidence can create discrepancies in stories, conflict with minor details that are not as firmly implanted in the minds of witnesses, and generally cause some confusion in the case. It can certainly become tedious at times and remove the emotional aspect of a murder that often captures the attention and focus of those serving as jurors. Yeah, I can buy that. So the case is headed to trial and a jury's being selected. But just as jury selection is about to begin, Milwaukee-based defense attorneys Stephen Glynn and Dean Strang, Dean would later rise to fame for representing his client Stephen Avery in another infamous Wisconsin murder case chronicled in a wildly popular Netflix series, submitted a motion to the court asking for a change in venue. They want the jury to be selected from a pool of individuals who live outside of Winnebago County, which includes both the cities of Nina and Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Arguing that the local media has published numerous stories about the case over the prior decade, including many which focus on John Andrews as a person of interest, attorneys Glenn and Strang state that the local jury pool in Winnebago County is incapable of providing an unbiased assessment of Andrews' guilt. In their motion to the court, they write that a Winnebago County trial, quote, will be impossible or will be unreasonably expensive because of the extensive pretrial publicity by radio, television, and print media outlets in the Fox River Valley area. I think it's a fair argument for the defense to make. This has been a high-profile case since the time that Swenson first went missing in 1983. 
But it's also important to note that there have been several years before John Andrews' arrest during which little, if anything, was published. The case was cold, with hardly any new evidence being brought to light at all for around six years prior to the sudden break in 1993. The judge in the case, Circuit Court Justice Robert Hawley, rules against the defense and states that jurors will be questioned individually prior to selection. As part of this, they'll be asked whether they have any prior knowledge of the case, as well as other routine questions, such as whether they believe they're able to offer an impartial ruling, apart from any personal judgments that they may hold. Judge Hawley does tell defense attorneys that they are free to submit another motion for a change of venue if, during jury selection, it seems difficult or impossible to identify jurors who state they are unaware of the case due to its profile in the media. Along with this, John Andrews' defense team submits one other motion to the court. It's one that's more complicated, but also one that is potentially much more damaging to the prosecution. The defense submits a motion asking the court to exclude any testimony from the John Doe hearing held not long after Starkey Swenson went missing. If you remember from our earlier episodes, the state in 1984 conducts a John Doe proceeding, a type of hearing that's unique to Wisconsin, in which the prosecution is able to call witnesses as part of an effort to determine whether a crime has been committed without having to disclose evidence to the defense team. There really isn't a defense team yet. The hearing in 1984 was held with John C. Andrews as the clear person of interest in the case. Investigators asked Andrews a lengthy list of questions about the events on and after August 13, 1983, in order to determine whether he was involved, which of course he denied. As the trial is prepared to start in 1994, Andrews' defense team writes a scathing motion against the John Doe proceeding, arguing that it's a highly suspect way of dealing with someone who is the subject of possible prosecution. Dean Strang goes so far as to state that John Doe proceedings in general are unnecessarily secretive, likely setting up further appeal against this investigative tool in case Andrews were to be convicted in the trial arguing that the secrecy is broader than any I'm aware of in federal court. He also notes that Andrews had been subpoenaed to appear at the proceeding, only to be asked to essentially testify against himself. In response to this, District Attorney Paulus stated that great pains had been taken to protect Andrews' Fifth Amendment rights, that he was aware of his legal options during the hearing, and that the testimony should be admitted. Justice Hawley agreed, once again siding with the prosecution in ruling that details of testimony given at the John Doe hearing should be admitted at trial. I can't say this is at all a surprise to me. Regardless of any personal opinion any of the attorneys involved in the case may hold, John Doe hearings are Wisconsin law, and their entire purpose is to assist in an investigation. It would be entirely out of place for the circuit court to rule that this testimony is inadmissible in a trial that resulted from an investigation that included such a hearing. I agree with your thoughts that the defense is, of course, anticipating this and is setting up the possible case for an appeal should John Andrews lose his argument at trial. As an interesting aside to our story, it's worth mentioning that in the years that have followed our case, John Doe hearings have remained a hot-button legal and political issue in Wisconsin. In 2015, the state passed legislation significantly limiting the scenarios in which a John Doe hearing can be used. 
The viability of John Doe hearings even made its way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court that year, related to investigations into the campaign of Governor Scott Walker. The court voted to suspend the John Doe hearing in that case. So back to the Starkey Swenson investigation. Judge Hawley rules against both motions submitted by the defense, and the case is once again headed for trial in Winnebago County, beginning with jury selection. In addition to noting that jurors will be questioned thoroughly before selection, Justice Hawley also indicates a high likelihood that he will order the jury sequestered during trial. He states he would plan to do this in order to insulate them from the inevitable media swarm that will cover every aspect of the trial once it begins. Not too much more happens before jury selection, which takes place on March 14, 1994. Both Prosecutor Joseph Paulus and Defense Attorneys Stephen Glynn and Dean Strang are permitted the ability to dismiss seven jurors for various reasons. This is in addition to Judge Hawley's option to dismiss any jurors whose answers to questions from any of the attorneys or the judge himself indicate a prospective juror may not be capable of unbiased judgment in this matter. Jurors are asked a number of questions as part of the screening process, including whether they know of anyone or have themselves been involved in an affair, whether they believe a body is needed to prove that a murder occurred, whether they have been the victim of a crime, and if so, if the perpetrator was brought to justice, and also whether it's important to always tell the truth or if there were legitimate reasons to lie and that truthfulness can be graded on a sliding scale based on the situation. In the end, 14 jurors are selected from the initial pool of 56, including six male jurors, six female jurors, and two alternates. All members of the jury are ordered to sequester in the Hilton Hotel in Oshkosh. They're asked to refrain from reading, viewing, or listening to anything related to the case, and are told to keep silent about any matters they hear in their capacity as a juror in the Starkey Swenson murder trial. In the next episode, we will cover the trial of John Andrews and learn more about his guilt or innocence and the possible location of Starkey Swenson's body. If you want to know more about the Starkey Swenson story, we highly recommend you visit our website or follow our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube for additional information, behind-the-scenes footage, and more. We will continue to post insider content and updates as this real-time investigation progresses. You can find our social media pages using the links on our website or by searching for us on our social media platforms. We'd like to take a moment to thank those who helped us compile information on this case, including the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, Newspapers.com, and individual citizens who've shared their knowledge. Our theme music was created by Mario Cole 06 and is available for download from Pixabay. <laughs>